think about how inconceivable Netflix would be to someone 100 years ago. That's the sort of thing that we see as, as the potential for, for this space. This is a podcast about aroma and how it impacts our life consciously and subconsciously. I'm Kayla Jacobs, a beauty and health writer living in New York, also an aromatherapy student, and scent nut. Today, I'm honored and thrilled to have Dr. Joshua Silverman on the podcast. Dr. Silverman is the CEO of Aromix, a Silicon Valley-based company that is digitizing the capture of scent and taste by placing human olfactory and taste receptors on disposable biochips. A little background on Dr. Silverman. He's a biotechnology entrepreneur with a successful history of developing novel technology platforms, a frequent speaker at scientific meetings, and he's also credited with more than 10 scientific publications and over 90 approved and pending patent applications. Dr. Silverman joins me to talk about the science of scent. I want to read you this excerpt from Patrick Suskin's perfume. Odors have a power of persuasion stronger than that of words, appearances, emotions, or will. The persuasive power of an odor cannot be fended off, enters into us like breath into our lungs. It fills us up, imbues us totally. There is no remedy for it. That whole quote about the emotion and and kind of the direct link into your feelings, as well as you know just the the basic aspects of breathing and such. I think it's it's actually very very accurate with how we all perceive and interact with smells on a daily basis. Smells so important, and yet it's so mysterious. You had told me that we have 400 olfactory receptors in our nose. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So we have about 400 receptors, uh, 400 types of receptors, I should say. And what's interesting is uh, we actually have about 500 other olfactory receptor genes in our genome that are inactive, that we've actually lost the function of. So it actually, we used to be able to smell a lot more. And when you look at something like a rat, for example, which relies on smell very much for its day-to-day survival, they have over 1,200 receptors, being able to distinguish lots of different types of smells more than we can. I was um, reading about Linda Buck and Richard Axel, and, and for those who don't know, they won the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology in 2004. It turns out that 3% of a rat's DNA is given over entirely to these receptors. Yep, which is a, a huge number. And, and in humans, it's 1%, which is you know, one of the single largest classes of genes in our genome. So yeah, smell is, is a huge, important part of how we are built and how we perceive the world. And as you said, it's, it is generally taken for granted, which is really interesting. This fact that not so much of it is going through our frontal lobe and like the normal processing centers, but it, it is connecting to that underlying core of the brain. Um, so it's, it's approaching our feelings as opposed to our sort of day-to-day perceptions. So take me back, you know, your background, how did you go from studying molecular biology to then doing a PhD in biochemistry at Stanford into this game-changing field of work? You know, I've always been interested in science. Um, so growing up, you know, I always, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. Um, and then I got interested in biology as, you know, this is the fundamental science of how all of us work. If we don't understand how our bodies work and how our cells work, it's very hard to understand anything else. And so really looking into the molecular basis of that, uh, you know, what are the code of our genes and, and the fact that from, you know, a chimpanzee to a human is 99 point something percent uh, identical. And yet you can see that, you know, the animals that, that are created are quite different. So understanding that difference and how that those very small details are actually critically important in our development, I thought that was 
fascinating and sort of working in the understanding the molecular basis on exactly how this works was really important. And so that's what led me into the field of biochemistry, understanding how genes make proteins, how proteins make the fundamental building blocks for everything that we do every day. Understanding, you know, how a muscle works and how you move your arms, I think, you know, that's that's really important and that's been well studied. The science of perception becomes much more complicated, in part because it's much more difficult to describe, right? We can describe how a muscle works by measuring the contraction. We can see, you know, exactly how many millimeters of fiber contracts when a, a signal comes in, and we can see how the proteins are changing conformation to create that. The science of smell in particular is one that's very poorly understood. And because we have no real good ways to measure what the perception of that smell is, it becomes very hard to start understanding the underlying mechanics because everything that you're doing has to be tied to some quantitative output. So when you're talking about perception, are you talking about how smells are interpreted in the brain? So, you know, how two similar molecules can have completely differing smells? That's exactly right. Yeah. And we know that they can have completely different smells, but to try to describe that quantitatively is very difficult because right now our standard for measuring smell is just asking people, what do you think this smells like? Two different people will give you two completely different answers to the same question. And if you go back and you ask those same people on the exact same molecules a week later, you might still get completely different answers. So that type of noise in the system, that subjective nature of measurement makes understanding the system incredibly difficult. And that's what's been a challenge in this industry for thousands of years, I guess. Right. And that's cultural and, and linguistic as well. The way that I would maybe describe the smell of rain could be different to the way you do, having grown up in America. Yeah. Even if our olfactory receptors were identical, were smelling the exact identical chemical mixture, and it's being perceived by our brains the same way, the fact that you know, we have different languages, we grew up differently, we use different words, we would still describe it potentially differently. And so understanding when you actually do an experiment and you measure differences, understanding where those differences come from and how to attribute them, it becomes very, very difficult. So again, that was sort of the core of aromics is can we take some of that subjectivity out of the measurement? Can we create a standard way of describing and measuring sense to allow all this other science and learning to, to go forward? And I would say this is actually very similar. We see a lot of parallels here to the way colors were handled, say, 100 years ago, where, you know, I could tell you that something was red, but red, you know, in what shade? Is it candy apple red? Is it, you know, carnation red? Is it crimson red? And, you know, I just used three different words, and I don't even know if I could <laughs> tell you what the difference between those reds were. Two different people might describe the same landscape that they saw in completely different ways, and yet it's exactly the same landscape. And it turns out that you know, a lot of work was done, and there are receptors in the eye that are detecting those colors in the same way that the receptors in the nose are detecting odors. And in fact, the receptors in the nose actually evolved before. The, the fundamentals that we think are very, very similar, but those receptor systems in the eyes are actually a lot simpler and probably because they evolved later. There are only three receptors for color compared to the 400 receptors for odor. And so understanding those three receptors led us to the, the realization that basically nobody sees the color orange, nobody sees the color purple. What you're seeing is a combination of red, green, and blue because you only have those three receptors for red, green, and blue wavelength in your eye. And your brain is then interpreting that in, into what's 
we refer to it, you know, as an RGB, red, green, blue signal, right? And, and it, that's creating a coordinate system in your brain, sort of three dimensions of red, green, and blue that allows you to identify a point in color space that your brain then interprets as orange or purple or exactly what shade. And so just measuring those three axes allows humans to distinguish over a million different shades of color. And by understanding that, we can we created what's known as the RGB code, which everyone uses on their computer at the moment. So it allows us to precisely define and recreate any given color uh, using just these three numbers that anyone else can then mix those red, green, and blue wavelengths. Make a rainbow. Yeah, and make a rainbow and make, and make a very specific rainbow and, and a specific color. Right. And so you know, we think the olfactory system is fundamentally very similar to that, whereas instead of three dimensions, it's probably a much higher dimensional space because there's so much more diversity in odor molecules and chemicals. And in fact, while humans can distinguish over a million different shades of color, uh, there's data out there that says that humans can distinguish over a trillion different types of odors or mixtures of odors. Uh, and that tells you it's a much larger, higher dimensional space. We think it's somewhere in the range of eight to 10 dimensions compared to the three for color. So what we're working on now is trying to identify those dimensions, identify which receptors in the nose are contributing to each dimension and what types of chemicals fit alongside that. What we were trying to do then is what we're calling a, an aroma code standard or an ACS to be analogous to this RGB standard that everyone uses for color so that we can actually put numbers um, and define very specific digital representations for describing an odor, which one allows us to understand uniquely what an odor is, but also to allow somebody on the other side of the world uh, to recreate that exact odor because they'll, you know, we'll, we'll understand exactly what the molecules are needed, what receptor patterns are needed for the brain to interpret a mixture of chemicals as the same, regardless of, again, how they subjectively describe it using words. So, I mean, essentially, even though scent is such a unquantifiable sense, in essence, you are saying that you're trying to quantify it on, on some level. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I would say I would disagree that it's unquantifiable. I think a hundred years ago, people would have said, you know, a rainbow was unquantifiable. I don't think there's anything fundamentally unquantifiable about smell. It's just significantly more complicated <laughs> and not to minimize that because 10 dimensions is a lot. And it's very hard for us as humans to be able to visualize a 10 dimensional space to try to do calculations in a 10 dimensional space. You know, that's just fundamentally not in our biology. But with the advent, uh, you know, the, the increase of computing power, the uh, machine learning applications, artificial intelligence, being able to measure these spaces, to describe these spaces, uh, it's becoming easier and easier. So it goes from being a sort of a, a conscious shift um, in mood and, and well-being that we always sense is palpable. To, as you say, it is quantifiable and it becomes part of our language, right? Part of our global language. Exactly. Yeah. And I, again, I think the, the, again, the parallels to the color system, I think, are, are to me, very clear. So again, 100 years ago, 
someone could describe color, could describe the landscape to someone else. They could sort of vaguely, subjectively say, you know, this was pretty, this was not, this was a, you know, a, a bright red versus a, a muted red, but it was very subjective and fuzzy. Now, once we get to something quantifiable, so something like the first cameras, right, being able to capture and describe and reproduce a visual uh, stimulus to someone else. All sorts of changes happened, both from a cultural standpoint, technological standpoint. I mean, the fact that we can, you know, watch Netflix every day and have these visual marvels, you know, all the CGI that's happening in movies, you know, being able to recreate those scenes and to be able to do that over and over again. All of that, it was based on, on the fundamental shift from color and vision being some subjective, we don't know, to actually something we can control and reproduce. So what this type of digitization of smell will enable, I think a lot of it we can't even imagine at this point. But you know, think about how inconceivable Netflix would be to someone 100 years ago. That's the sort of thing that we see as, as the potential for, for this space. So if our visual system evolved from our limbic system, then talk about the hippocampus and the amygdala. Talk about the parts of our brain responsible for emotions and moods and, and those other functions related to depression, anxiety. Talk about that in terms of the digitization or the capture of aroma going forward with degenerative mind diseases, emotions, and so forth. Oh, sure. Yeah. So the olfactory inputs, right? So your, your nose con connects direct to the olfactory bulb, which connects pretty much directly into the amygdala and the hippocampus. All your other senses pass through the thalamus, which is a much higher brain function. I'm, I'm using probably the, the wrong words here, but trying to trying to simplify a little bit. The, the amygdala and the hippocampus, these are you know, the, the early brain, the primitive brain. These are the core processes such as fear, stress, anxiety, memory, emotion. That's what those areas of the brain control. And scent is the only sense that actually plugs directly into those. You know, this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. And one of the things we use scent for is detecting danger. If you're, you know, a primitive animal out in the wilderness and you're, you stumble across something that might be food, the first thing you're going to do is smell it. And you need to make a decision very quickly. Is this something good to eat or is this something that's going to poison me? That core decision-making process, again, needs to be rapid and it needs to be accurate, right? Because um, again, from a evolutionary perspective, your survival as an individual depends on can you accurately determine whether this is good for me and useful, or is it going to kill me? It's not something like vision where you're, in a, you're reading a book and you're, you're reading every line and you're processing it and you're thinking about it and you can come to some rational decision at some point later. You need to know, you need to feel whether this food is, is safe, is good for you or not. And it's getting into a lot of very primitive decision-making processes. You know, another one is attraction. A lot of evidence that people generally tend to choose partners who are different from an uh, immune complex standpoint. So the ability to detect and react to different types of diseases or immune stimuli. So the idea being, if you mate with someone who's more different than you, your offspring will be more robust, be more resistant to disease and, and therefore healthier. And it turns out the immune system, how we advertise ourselves to our mates, you know, what is our MHC class status, uh, to use the, the technical term, there are breakdown products of the, that immune system that are present in our sweat, in our body odor, and that's what's being picked up by our olfactory system. 
So a lot of this, again, this primitive brain, am I attracted to this person or not? is coming from this process, which is, again, still tied back to evolution and how do we, or we as an individual, uh, think that we're gonna give our offspring the best chance to succeed. And that's, again, not something that goes in this rational portion of the brain where we're gonna be thinking about it. It's a fundamental feeling of this is beneficial or not. And I think that's just one area that's been reasonably well studied. I think there's probably a lot of other calculations like that that are happening on a day-to-day basis. So I think you mentioned it at one point, and I, I've heard it from others as well, is that, that scent is one of the most taken for granted senses that there is. Yeah. A lot of that is because it's funneling into this unconscious brain and it's affecting our feelings. It's affecting our decision-making capability at a level that's below conscious thought, if that makes sense, or underlying our conscious thought. And you really only notice when something goes wrong. That's so interesting because we we have a multi-billion dollar fragrance industry based around uh, sex and libido and attraction and pheromones. So it's kind of marrying this subconscious with conscious intention, which I also think is really interesting. Yeah, no, and and I think there's some really interesting applications there. I mean, like you said, there's a multi-billion dollar industry out there. But it has, to date, been based entirely on trial and error. It's much more of an art than a science. And that doesn't say it's not valuable and not useful, but it's inefficient. So you know, within a certain flavor house or perfumery house, right, there are certain experts who have done this for years, and they are very good at what they're doing. But for them to try to communicate that to someone else, to try to teach someone else what, what works, what doesn't work, it's incredibly difficult, right? And you have apprenticeship programs and it can take years and years and years to train someone to be as good as another perfumer. Whereas if you actually had a database, right, and a way to quantify the smells and to be able to understand this type of smell is good, this type of smell is bad, and to be able to draw quantitative mathematical boxes around the smell and say, these are all the smells that are similar, that behave the same way. Think how much faster the industry could move if you actually had that as a resource and as a tool for communicating with each other. I mean, that would be amazing. And also from an environmental standpoint. So I had told you that I'm an aromatherapy student and uh, maybe a decade ago, I used to be able to buy amazing sandalwood from Mysore in India. That's some of the best and sweetest smelling sandalwood in the world. Now you can't buy sandalwood oil from Mysore because globally we've sort of raped and pillaged the land. So a, a lot of the sandalwood now is coming from Australia. So talking about the, the digitization and the digital capture, how would that impact things. Is there really a difference that the brain or that the emotions can detect between smelling something that's just been extracted versus the the digital version of it? In theory, no. In practice, there's always details of of oxidation and chemicals are changing and so on. But the, the idea being if we can measure the smell and we can know exactly the pattern of olfactory receptors in your nose that are supposed to turn on to give you that experience of the specific sandalwood oil that you like, we can describe that sensation precisely. Now, yeah, the details of how you would recreate it is something that would need to be worked out to make sure that you can actually recreate in the right way. That's, that's a limitation of chemistry, not of the information science. So 
think of it like paint, you know, again, a hundred years ago, people were limited to kind of the natural pigments and colors and things that they could mix together, right? So for them to get exactly the right shade of red to describe, you know, the sunset that they were trying to paint was very difficult. Today, we've developed, you know, huge industries around chemistry and pigments and being able to mix and blend colors. And with the 32 million colors on your computer screen, you can get exactly the shade of, of pigment that you want. So, so I'd say, yeah, today the industry is probably not there to exactly recreate that sandalwood oil, but that's something, that's one of those fundamental technologies that we, we would see being enabled. Once you have the ability to actually measure, you know, are you getting the same scent as the sandalwood oil? And if not, why is it not? And how is it different? Because that's, that's the key problem is if I give you a, a version of sandalwood oil that, that I made and you smell it and you can tell me, no, this is not the same as the one that I like, is, you know, it smells off, but that doesn't give me any information on what do I need to change in order to actually make it better, right? So again, it comes back to a trial and error process. So I've got to go back, make another kind of random mixture of chemicals, give it to you and say, does this smell the same or not? And, and that process just repeats and repeats until I get lucky. That's the, essentially the state of the industry right now. So being able to have a numerical system that I can measure the sandalwood oil you like, then I can measure what I created and I can say, okay, here's how they're different. And I can draw a, a vector in multidimensional space that says, here's where I have to go to get something that smells like what you're trying to get. And then, then the chemistry and the technology behind developing those scents can actually move forward in a precise and defined fashion instead of a trial and error fashion. Could you kind of use the equivalent of going into a corner store and you have a shop assistant who's a real life human being versus a shop assistant who's a robot? You know, ultimately those basics of how we interact could you use that as a comparison in terms of the recreation yes of course you can recreate something that's akin to something else but like really is it in terms of our like deep emotions and how we I guess relate and function and and what we love in the world yeah I think that would make sense and the thing we've heard a lot from online retailers I mean to your point of you know having a a robot in the store and actually more and more groups are going to online ordering systems. You can go on your favorite online portal and you can order groceries and have them delivered to your house. And for packaged foods, that's great. You know exactly what that is. But where the system has been falling apart, and retailers have come and told us this, is for produce. Um, you know, thing, you know, your oranges, your bananas, your uh, peaches, those types of things, because people don't just buy them on looks. You want to be in there. You want to be able to smell it. Is this ripe? Is this going to actually taste good? And it's actually limiting sales right now that people will buy lots of other things online, but they tend not to buy the, the fruits or, or if they do buy the fruits, they just trust the um the grocer that there's a human there who's going to pick for them the most ripe or the highest quality version of that peach or that grape or whatever it is they're looking for but if there was a way for us to you know online be able to communicate me as the consumer sitting in my computer and say hey you know those peaches look good what do they smell like is it worth me buying it and actually being able to communicate that back we think that's potentially a pretty valuable use case yeah huge i mean because the science 
is really to augment the experience. So as you say, you're translating sounds and colors and textures and emotions in ways that the lay person is never really going to fully comprehend, which is probably great. I'm, I'm utterly fascinated and I, I might have a better understanding than the average person, but still not nearly anything in, in the realm of, of what you do. And, and maybe if I was to understand it in all its entirety, it potentially would take some of the romance out of it for me, because I think for me anyway, aroma is just, is such a sort of, romantic sense to some extent yeah you don't necessarily need to understand the nuts and bolts behind it right so so one example you know think about say wine so a lot of wine is a, is a great go-to for me because if you read any wine review and it has 30 adjectives or so that somebody wrote down i've never read a wine review that actually helped me to make a decision on whether i this is actually going to taste good to me or not they're not super helpful to me anyway but if I could have some computer program where I could say, you know, here's the three or four wines that I've tasted before and I like, these are the brands, the years, whatever that I like. And then there's some calculation that goes on behind the scenes that basically quantifies each of those wines. It identifies what was similar about those. What are the features in the flavor profile that are the same? And then it goes out and searches out, you know, here's the five or six other brands of wine that are similar to that, what you liked before. So why don't you try these, right? So essentially, you know, a Pandora type system for, for foods, flavors, and so on. So you don't have to understand the algorithm. If you just are telling, these are the things I like, and it's able to actually calculate other things that you, that are similar to that, that you may also like, that could be a, a really interesting or hopefully, you know, useful way for consumers to be able to engage with the system without needing to know. So the other example is, you know, looking at your webpage, right, you, you can see all the different colors. You don't need to know the RGB codes and the systems that are being used to, to recreate those colors to, that determined which of the two colors next to each other give good contrast that are pleasing to the eye, etc. Someone else is dealing with the science and you're able to take advantage of that through the interface. Yeah, so in essence, the science transcends our challenges and, and presents something for us to be able to interact with. So back to aromics, tell me about your new position there, because I know that it's kind of relatively new, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I joined the company as, as CEO about six, seven months ago. You know, the company had been around for a couple of years beforehand, working on the fundamental science, uh, making sure that they could actually do what they, some of the things that we're talking about, because again, this is not easy, right? If it was easy, it would have been done decades ago. So this is all difficult, cutting edge stuff, but you know, that's what makes it exciting. And so I joined to try to help one continue to develop the platform, but to really try to find some of these applications and figure out how can we really bring this in, into a real commercial business sooner rather than later. Because as you can imagine, the technology is under development, it, it could take a long ways before it becomes absolutely perfect. And so knowing you know, what are the things that we can apply to, what are the low hanging fruit, for lack of a better term, things that we can go after now that we, we can make uh, early wins and we can continue to and get traction to develop and expand the technology over time. So those early wins, and we're talking about designing transformative experiences, in essence, what are those early wins? Like, are we talking about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? Are we talking about environmental impact? Are we talking more about just the way retailers communicate with consumers and vice versa? Where is it going? So I would say our earliest wins and things that we think we can get to goes back to this idea, you know, what do we use scent for? 
primarily. And it's really fundamentally to detect differences in things and to detect in particular when things are wrong, when things are bad, when things are spoiled, when they're dangerous, when there is a problem. We hear this over and over in different industries where complex processes, manufacturing processes, foods and so on, I mean, they, they can smell when there's a problem, but understanding trying to quantify that, being able to detect it is difficult. And if you're relying on someone in the assembly chain uh, of a manufacturing process to smell and notice and to speak up and say, hey, there's a problem here, you know, that's, those, are, those are difficult questions. In the food safety industry, more and more food recalls, contaminations in food, spoilage, you know, things that are dangerous, that things that are needing to get pulled back. So being able to create sensors where we can identify those off smells, those malodors, those things that are associated with problems, again, whether that's pathogens, whether that's mold, whether that's bad flavors, <laughs> you know, these are the things that, that we think we can help with. So being able to detect that and again, detect it quantitatively at earlier stages in the process than a human would be able to detect it necessarily. So again, things like food spoilage. So can we tell you when, you know, a batch of milk or cheese has gone bad visually earlier than someone just looking at it would be? We're seeing this actually in, in manufacturing processes, a lot of natural fermentation processes. So fermentation is, you know, growing a yeast culture, which is essentially a living being. But we use that for wine, we use that for beer, we use that for bread. How the fermentation is conducted, how those cells are growing, you know, sometimes they grow better, sometimes they grow worse, and that affects the flavor profile of the, the product. That's really difficult to measure and to control because it is such a complicated process. And right now, again, state of the art is Somebody will sit there and smell it or taste it every once in a while and say, yeah, okay, things are fine. Or, oh, there's a, there's a serious problem here. But the stuff in the middle, you know, how do you make a decision on is it okay, is it not? Um, how, do you make a how do you identify it early enough in the process to say, hey, something's starting to go bad. I need to fix it. I need to make a change and, and, um, and make this better. So those, those are the types of things that we think we can, we can help with early on. Um, and what's really nice about that is there's a clear right answer, right? A lot of the other things we've talked about in terms of preference and, you know, are you going to like this? Are you not going to like this? Are you getting the right answer or not? Is really hard to define, right? For something like this, where, you know, is the food spoiled or not? Is it, a, is it going to spoil two days from now? You know, those are clear answers that we can know. Yes, this is right. This is working or no, our technology isn't quite there yet. We need to improve it in, in X, Y, and Z ways. Quick little sort of tangent. Are there smells that we can all agree on biologically, no matter where we're from? Probably. And, and again, I would say mostly those are going to be the bad smells. Well, what's, what's really interesting is we said there, there's 400 classes of receptor that all of us have, but in the actual specific gene sequences that each of us have for each of those is actually quite different. So on average, just looking at this up, a paper from a few years ago actually quantified this and from person to person, on average, 30% of our receptors are actually slightly different. Even though we all have 
roughly 400 of the, these receptors, 70% of them are the same, 30% are different. And those differences can change our perception. So for example, a recent paper came out that they've actually identified some people like beets. Um, I'm one of them, but other people think they taste like dirt. And it turns out that's due to a single change in one olfactory receptor that some people are born with and they can smell and taste this extra chemical in the beets that makes them taste like dirt. And others of us have a less sensitive version of that gene that, um, you know, makes us not necessarily perceive that. You know, there's many other examples of this. And, and that gets back to our, you know, at the very beginning of saying how subjective is something. So now, depending on who you ask what something smells like, it's not just cultural and language differences on how they describe it, but their fundamental genetics may be different than, than mine. It's, it's the wine review problem again. You know, somebody wrote down a bunch of words. How does that help me personally to understand, am I going to like this or not? But if scent, as we say, is something that we're pretty much all disconnected from or we don't understand it, I understand what you're saying from a retail perspective or, you know, from a food perspective. But yes, like a, a food company would want this technology for sure. But on other levels, how do we make sure that science doesn't make us even more disconnected if it's something that we're not really tapped into and it's something we should tap into to, to help us in all ways? How, how do we kind of toe that line? I'm probably the wrong one to answer because I'm very much a technologist and I get yelled at by some people about this of being, you know, overly um, uh, accepting of new technologies and, and rapidly adopting. So I, I certainly know there's more cons conservative groups that, um, you know, want to be a little bit more careful. Again, I would say, I mean, the best thing to do is to interface with it. You know, that example I was giving before of kind of the recommendations, you know, if we're thinking about this more in terms of what do I like, having an interface that you can go on onto a website and being able to interact with it without having to dig into the science and be able to get recommendations for things that I like. And then I can try that and see, yes, this is useful for me. I mean, absolutely, you can imagine things going in the wrong direction, but I think you can say that of of any technology. I guess sense of smell is sort of the bottom of the hierarchy, right? Because you can't smell logic, you can't smell reason, but the science that you're creating sort of changes that actually. There is reason behind it and we understand it. Yeah. And I think it, you know, at one level, it, having the tools in place to actually be able to measure it. So if somebody was misusing it, if they were creating weird underlying scents that were causing you know, changes in behavior, at least you would be able to detect and measure it. Uh, right now, we don't even have those tools. If somebody did stumble across that through their trial and error, at the moment, we don't have any way to detect whether that's really happening or not. There, there, there's pros and cons to everything, I think. We spoke about the, the sort of the more immediate things. If you just wouldn't mind touching on a few or one of the things that further in the future that you think this technology is going to help us with. I, again, I think there's applications through all sorts of different industries. And we, we have people coming to talk to us about lots of stuff. So it comes back to this idea that scent is fundamental to how we interact with the world. Uh, again, in many of the ways that we just take for granted. And so when you start thinking about it, there are lots of different applications and areas we can get into. I mean, to your point, the uh, therapeutic type benefits, you know, what are the things that we can do to, to really create direct benefits for people. So again, coming back to this, the olfactory system plugs into these core areas of the brain, fear, stress, memory. These are things that 
in theory, then we can start to use smells to actually start treating disorders and creating benefits. There's been several studies showing that you can actually start to help mitigate addiction behavior. A lot of those pleasure centers of the brain, that is kind of that core reward area. And so being able to use the smells to plug into that area of the brain and cause beneficial stimuli that can reduce their cravings, reduce their need for things like tobacco or whatever else they're, they're addicted to. In many cases, things like chocolate. Can we prevent overeating? Can we you know, help people to um, create beneficial choices through this? I think is interesting. The other one is memory. Your memory formation is happening during sleep. And what's really interesting here is because the smell system, it again goes through this subconscious area of the brain. So smell is actually the one sense where you can interact with the brain while you, the patient, are not aware of it. So if you want to intervene with someone during sleep, scent is the right sense to use, right? Because it's the only one that's not going to wake you up, <laughs> right? You, it's really hard to interact with a visual system or interact with the auditory system when someone is asleep. As soon as you do that, you wake them up again. So a lot of really good data. Um, it's really interesting. If you interact or, or expose people to smells during different stages of sleep, you can actually create effects in the brain and you can improve memory, improve retention, improve focus and awareness uh, the next day after they wake up. Those sorts of therapeutic applications, I think, are really, really interesting. And I think we're really just scratching the surface on it at the moment. I'd also read this really interesting study, sort of conversely, with individuals who were suffering from PTSD and a smell being a potent trigger of a negative emotion, not a positive emotion. Yeah, it absolutely goes both ways. Smell is also, it's an interesting one. It's actually fairly um, plastic or, or flexible, if you will. Associations that people have smell with memory, state-dependent memory and that sort of thing. But you know, people will smell a smell and it takes them back to you know, when they were growing up in their mother's house, or grandmother's house, et cetera. And, and you can form associations, both good and bad. Like for me, I, I can't eat certain candy bar any, any longer. Cause when I was young, I was, went on a fishing trip. I ate this candy bar and I got seasick. It just doesn't taste good any longer. I, I eat this specific candy bar and, and it brings back that memory. So to your point of, are there certain universal smells? I think, yes, absolutely. But then what's really interesting is people create these individualized associations and each person is going to be different, right? So you have these multiple levels of perception. So you have the, the genetics of what exact chemicals are your receptors able to detect, which then leads to this universal good and bad. And then you have an extra layer above that of the associations that you're, you're making, which are probably somewhere in between the subconscious and conscious brain. And then you have your rational thought sitting on top of all of that. You, you can certainly train yourself. I shouldn't like sweet foods, right? Sugar is bad for you. You, you shouldn't eat so much sugar. So I've, I've trained myself over many years now to basically, if I see something sweet or smell something sweet, I actually just say, I don't like this, right? This doesn't taste good to me. The problem is that there's so many different levels that it's so complicated. And that's where, again, just bringing it all the way back to what aromics is doing, we have to have a standard. If there's so many different variables, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to be able to isolate something as a starting point. Once you have that, then you can start identifying how these other things are changing. Again, the genetic changes versus somebody who has PTSD and has now associated the smell of smoke with a war zone or and, and causes uh, flashbacks and things of that nature. So 
all of that, I think it, it still comes back to if you don't have a starting point in a common language to describe it, it just becomes very, very difficult to move forward in any kind of rigorous or rational way. This is just really groundbreaking research and work you're doing and information. Lastly, let me just ask you, just because I'm sure people would like to know, do you wear fragrance? Do you wear cologne or perfume yourself? <laughs> no, um, I probably should. I was actually thinking of putting in a smell uh, atomizer, whatever it is, into the work area. So right now we just have various flowers and plants to try to have a, a more neutral environment. When I was reading about you and about your sort of pending patent applications and your scientific publications, you'd like to speak a bit more on that? So personally, I'm very focused on, on sustainability, impact on the planet. The oil example was a great one where you know, this is a natural product. It's very useful. And yet, you know, we're raping the planet to find it and we've over-harvested and now no one can have it anymore. And we, we hear that story over and over and over again. A lot of the current odorants, a lot of the, the things that people are using as flavors, fragrances, almost all of them are natural products, partly because we don't understand what parts of them are actually creating that flavor profile. And I read an article just a couple of weeks ago in Science Magazine talking about how there are still people whose whole job is it to just go out to the rainforest and harvest various plants and, and just try to find new smells and new fragrances. We can over harvest that. So I think there is, you know, absolutely a strong argument to do something like this to, to allow us to get a better understanding of how things smell, what they smell, what they what things taste like, so that we can actually start designing, right? So instead of relying on natural occurrence, which we as a species have shown time and again that we are going to mismanage and, and <laughs> over harvest. Um, so if we can actually start understanding that and creating that ourselves, I think there is a significant potential benefit on the environmental side and the sustainability side. And so to the extent that we can actually enable something like that, I think, yeah, I'm absolutely all for that. Definitely trying to find different ways that we can make better use of our natural resources. And uh, to the extent that's possible, then, you know, I'm excited about those opportunities. From my aromatherapy studies, I know that, and I don't know if people know this, but in order to produce one single pound of essential oil, for one pound of rose oil, you need to use 10,000 pounds of rose petals. Yep. In terms of lavender, that's 250 pounds. So, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling. The average person isn't thinking about that. So the work that you're doing with aromics could have a very profound effect on our environment and how we use things going forward. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and especially when we think about these rare plants, rare, rare animals, rare species in things like the rainforest, or to the extent we can reduce pressure on those in any way possible, I would view that as a, definitely a good thing. You're so sort of modest, but like, I think it just, you've, you've done some amazing things. So I just, to give the listener a bit of an insight. I'm more of an entrepreneur. I've, um, I've started five different companies, all biotechnology companies here in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years. The first three of those were actually in therapeutics. So created actual injectable drugs that could be used for treating things like arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and, and some various immune diseases and diabetes as well. So a lot of those patents are around those kind of drug platforms. My more recent companies prior to Aromic was a company called Callista, which was very much focused on the sustainability angles. The focus of that company was actually creating a new source of protein uh, that can be used to feed both animals and humans, basically creating a protein that has no 
no land use impact, no water impact. All these, you know, thousands of pounds of rose petals have to come from somewhere. So all of that is taking arable land that could be used to grow crops for people. So the, the biggest problem I see, a lot of other people see, is right now we have what six billion people on the planet. That's going to 10 billion people on the planet in by the year 2050, and. Where is the food for all of these people going to come from? Because we're basically at our limit of arable land uh, for crops currently, and in order to feed everybody, you would need essentially double the amount of space, which just doesn't exist, right? So somewhere we need new sources of food. We need new sources of products that are going to be able to sustain this growing population. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm really grateful that you took the time to to speak to me, and I think that this is going to be something that's very, very well received. Oh, no problem. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun.